Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Troy Cross, professor of philosophy and Bitcoiner. We talk about science, academia, what's broken about the current system, and why it came to be the way it is. We also talked about Bitcoin and how that fits into the picture. Troy Cross, how's everything going, man? It's going great. How are you, Jimmy? I'm good. I'm good. Where in the world are you right now? I just got back to uh, Portland, Oregon last night. I'm in my office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very how, nice. How are you? Very Where nice. are you? Are you in Austin? I am. I am. So you're in Portland. You know, I know they had some stuff going on a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Any of that residual consequences of that that you're feeling still, or is uh, it I mostly mean, gone? I think definitely we are still feeling it. And it's a combination uh-huh. of factors, the stuff going on. You know, we have a severe homeless crisis here, mm-hmm. as we do along much of the five on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And housing prices are very high. Uh, mm-hmm. Not high relative to San Francisco and maybe Austin right now, but uh, high mm-hmm. relative to most of the country. And we had demonstrations that turned violent and destructive and also which brought down you know the force of the law in a way that was really really counterproductive <laughs> from many of our <laughs> perspectives one of my students actually got abducted by federal border patrol agents uh walking home from a protest hooded thrown into an unmarked van and renditioned away to a federal building and interrogated his stuff searched you know it was wild so it just felt really Really weird, and and no, things have never quite returned to normal in in Portland. COVID wiped us out. We had a lot of restaurants closed down. We're bouncing back, but we've got a severe kind of malaise, I think, in terms of you know just people who don't have a place to stay, and they're just kind of parked all over the city and trash everywhere. And it's mm. uh, we're not quite back to normal. Having said <laughs> that, you know the impression of Portland that you might get even from what I just said, is wrong. And most of Portland is still one of the most beautiful, you know, cool places that there, is, that there are. It's just just not back to where it was a decade ago. Mm, I see. I see. So I'm bringing you on this show because you're a philosopher and <laughs> we do want to talk about Bitcoin and everything else. But what do you make of what's happened in the last few years? Like, what's your opinion of sort of like, as a philosopher, what's going on at a deeper macro level? I mean, I don't have a perfect diagnosis of what's going on. That's part of what's scary is nobody really knows. But Mm. I do see trust and communications breaking down across different segments of society. And I see people kind of entrenching and doubling down and becoming more extreme across the board. And Mm. basically the, I'm an epistemologist. That's, you know, we study the theory of knowledge Mm. and the way we have advanced as a species is the way that we've advanced in all other forms of life, which is to divide and conquer, to specialize in trade. You know, this is how cities formed. I don't know how to do all the stuff that you know how to do. You know how to do stuff that I don't know how to do. And so we specialize, become really good at something, and we trade for other stuff. And that happened with knowledge too, because mm. all I have to do is look around my 
hallway here to see all of these specials, see new stuff that I can't possibly know because it just takes too much time to learn it all, given the mm. advancement of human knowledge. So we specialize and we trade. And that system of specialization in trade, it's not quite like specialization in trade with goods. Because with a good, you can kind of check it for quality. Whereas for knowledge, it's not easy to check. It's really not easy to check when it's highly specialized knowledge. It is if it's like, you know, somebody building a weapon, you use the weapon, it either works or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of knowledge, it's not so easy to check. It's complicated. And if you don't trust those intermediaries who you're trading knowledge with, the whole system breaks down and you're back to building up your own system of knowledge from scratch, which sounds great, but is actually almost impossible given how much human knowledge there is and how it's specialized into all of these different crooks, you know, crooks and um, pockets. So I guess what I see as a philosopher, as an epistemologist, this is me seeing through my own window, is a breakdown mm. of trust in uh, social institutions that allowed us to not worry about the truth about all of these little like, details in life and just trade for those with each other. And now I see a system where everything is in question. We have groups of people who highly distrust the other groups and those institutions that kind of certified knowledge, those are not trusted anymore. And you have a social co collapse you know, because of that that's spiraling ever more extreme because we don't have a connection to truth via trusted, basically trusted intermediaries. Mm. Well, you mentioned sort of this breakdown and this lack of trust. What caused that and why, like, do they, are the people that aren't trusting the authorities or in certain fields, are they being dumb or do they have good reason for <laughs> well, their behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I guess here's where I differ from a lot of my colleagues who are in the academy, because I think it's a mutual, I think it's caused by three things. <laughs> One mm -hmm. is it's caused by systems that amplify misinformation easily, like rumors tra travel faster than truth. And that's a kind of common story that in some ways, you know, post a false story on Facebook, it'll travel faster than the truth because it's catchier and designed to spread. <laughs> That's you know that's a that's a part of the story, but a large part of the story is that the authorities have screwed up. I mean, by authorities, I mean people like me and people in the academy uh, who've been less than fully transparent and honest, and who have also succumbed to partisan rancor and identity politics. And I think once you have this kind of social divide between people who are like you and people who are not like you. If the authorities seem to be captured by a group identity that's not yours, you can't trust what they say. And I feel like a lot of the academy either has been captured by ideology, or even when they haven't, they haven't done enough to shed the appearance that they have. So I don't be blame people for not trusting authority. And I, I guess we could go into specific examples where authorities have screwed up. But I feel like we... I'm not blaming my colleagues in the sense that I know how to do it right and do it better. It, it's a very hard thing to do. But, you know, government agencies that certify knowledge, they have to be seen as apolitical. They have to be seen as apolitical if they're to be trusted. And they aren't being seen that way. 
and they often aren't that way. I mean, I'll give an example of I saw a famous uh, climate scientist post something on Twitter a few weeks ago where it, there was a projection that half of Florida would be underwater by some date in the future. I don't remember what it was, 2080 or something like that. 2100. I don't remember the date. And he posted like, ah, oh, great. You know, it's a red state. Maybe nature has a way of taking care of itself or something. And I just thought like, oh my God, this is a person who won a MacArthur Prize, who won a Sagan Prize. And my thought was just great. You just frittered away, you know, so much public trust <laughs> by <laughs> aligning yourself, not, not only being really cruel and inhuman, but aligning yourself with a political point of view and dehumanizing everybody who doesn't share it. Now nobody's going to trust your science because they'll see your mm -hmm. science as a simple kind of, you know, motivated by your desire to impose your beliefs on others or motivated by revenge or motivated by social factors rather than by an honest accounting to relay the evidence as you see it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think there's plenty of blame to go around in the breakdown of trust. But I guess where I differ from some others in this view is I feel like we've lost trust partly because of our own close-mindedness and inability to listen to others. And to regain trust, you cannot regain trust as a simple matter of authority or censorship. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think that the answer is like, oh, we can bring America back together again by censoring social media effectively. It's like, that's Obama's move. No, I adamantly reject that idea. I feel like it would only accelerate it would only accelerate the dissolution of America. And in order to heal America, we have to re-earn trust. And that means not dehumanizing people. That means listening to people where they're at, not insulting their intelligence, not insulting them, and showing our evidence. And just like, it's a hard work of education. You're an educator, right? <laughs> You're mm -hmm. an educator. You confront misinformation and disinformation every day about Bitcoin and, and other things. And you know, it's freaking hard to talk mm. across difference. And there's no substitute for that that involves top-down authority, you know, constricting information or questions or designating some people as the censors because they have power. That that makes everything worse, in my opinion. Mm. Well, so there's a couple of things that I want to pick, you know, sort of pull the thread on a little bit. One is your argument seems to be essentially that a lot of people are bad at presenting their research or, you know, their findings and so on, and that it gets perceived by the opponents uh, as this is politically motivated, therefore it's no good. I mean, the question for me is, does that actually happen? Like, is it that they are being truthful, they just seem partisan and they're bad at presenting, it's a communication issue, or is it, it, does the rot go deeper? Is it that they really are partisan and that they really are sort of like, and th this is the question that I think many people in public kind of have, which yeah. is, you know, how much of it is just them being, I don't know, the arrogant ivory tower intellectual that can't be bothered to explain something to, you know, somebody that's too dumb to understand it or, but, you know, what they're saying is actually true versus they're actively like sort of manipulating what, what they present to make it seem, you know, favorable towards whatever politics that they have. 
like how motivated, I guess, are these people by truth and how much fidelity is there towards truth, you know, versus, you know, their lack of communication skills. These seem to be two different issues. I agree. There are different issues. And, um, you know, when I, I mean, one thing about being in Bitcoin is you see a mm. lot of motivated reasoning everywhere. And, you know, the first, it's like a very powerful lesson in epistemology, actually, just to watch discourse happen in this space, because mm. everybody has bags and everybody is pumping their bags. And those bags are very obvious in the case of, you know, altcoiners pumping their altcoin bags. It's so it's so obvious and your DMs are full of people who want you to do the same for them. And that's like really obvious instance of it. But you realize that everybody's doing it. You know, people pushing the traditional banking system and the dollar and traditional finance, they benefit from pushing that. And even people whose bags are merely reputational and historical. I think of a, the, a lot of the early economists who took a stand against Bitcoin and said it was worth zero seemed to be cheering for it to go to zero because it would make them right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just, they're just, <laughs> mm-hmm. they're, their reputation is their bags. They don't have actual bags, but they have reputational bags or identitarian bags. And it's almost like a slogan that applies across the board that humans are always pumping their bags, whatever those bags are. And you can't you can't avoid pumping your own bags and everybody else is doing it too. In order to serve the truth, you have to get beyond that somehow. And um, and I wouldn't say that's any different in academia. People have bags and they're pumping them. Of course. I mean, this is kind of like basic philosophy of science. We work within paradigms. Thomas Kuhn is the one who, I guess, sets out this structure of normal science and revolutionary science. Most periods of science work within a paradigm. That is, there's a set of kind of rules and things you take for granted, and you work inside of that, and you do what's called normal science, making the theories ever more precise, but you never question the the foundation of that science. And then there are periods of revolutionary science where the foundations get questioned. And you know that's people like Copernicus, and Galileo and Darwin, who kind of call into question the reigning paradigm of their field. And those are different kinds of science. And definitely during normal science, you are defending and taking for granted almost all elements of the theories that you're working inside of. And you're trying to push your own actual, your own brand within the field and promoting yourself. And some of that means kissing up to the right people, paying homage to the right people. There's you know, humans are humans. Inside the academy, it's no different. And then there are the academy, as everybody knows, is highly political and politicized. It would just be utter lie to say otherwise. And so those political bags are definitely being pumped in the academy. That's true. There's an element of that. And and we see it in Bitcoin, right? It would be utterly foolish for me to tell you that that, you know, Paul Krugman is a straightforwardly honest economist who just can't quite communicate well and is therefore perceived mm-hmm. as being biased. Like he clearly has a bias. He's just he's a straight up name calling salty no coiner, right? That's what he is. Mm-hmm. And he just happens to have a Nobel Prize in economics. And, and you know what I mean? And be a New York Times columnist. You know, but I have to say, being inside the academy, I also see that the vast majority of work that people do is not that. You know, it's very hard work of crunching numbers, doing observations, 
setting up studies, critically thinking. Like the vast majority of we work we do is not politicized or political. It's it's actually really extremely boring, and you're just trying to crank it out, right? That's so both things are happening, and I have seen like scientists be incredibly poor communicators that it's, it's what happens it's kind of like you, you actually know this because you're a bitcoin educator and you're good at this you know how hard it is but you mm. you get cursed by having too much knowledge in a subspecialty the, the stuff mm. i work on the most i have the hardest time explaining because i'm way into a world that has its own technical vocabulary its own traditions and i have forgotten what it's like even to not know that stuff it's really hard to put myself in the shoes of somebody who doesn't, you know, and, and I see a lot of scientists in that, in that frame of mind. So I think both things take place. I, I have to say my wife is a infectious disease hospital pharmacist, and she, during the outbreak of the pandemic, spent, you know, every day, all day studying all of the treatments of COVID. As each study came out, she analyzed it. And then she broke down that analysis and shared it with her hospital team, university team, other pharmacists, doctors, other healthcare providers. Like, what is the best way we can treat this thing according to the data that's coming in? Right. And I saw her break that down every day with the utmost integrity and ability she had. And those studies are not easy to interpret. And find flaws with them, but that speciality is like taking apart these these methodologies, but also in the context of knowing a lot about infectious disease generally, the human body generally, treatments generally. And so I saw definitely bogus studies being touted as great studies for political reasons, and uh, I saw a ton of hype taking over what what was actually the science and. And I saw the value of being a specialist and actually spending your whole life studying something. And my, my wife's perspective throughout the whole thing was like, when it came to something like hydroxychloroquine, her perspective was like, we, we don't have any good evidence that it works. We have some preliminary evidence. It's totally not enough to make a clinical recommendation on the, on the basis of it. And you know, her, her perspective was the same for ivermectin, for instance. It was like, well, there's some promising stuff, but not really enough to make a recommendation. And that reflected her sort of knowledge of all of these other drugs for other conditions that had been through exactly the same kind of one promising study, but it was flawed and it works in vitro, but that doesn't mean anything for whether it works in people. And, you know, that entire context was missing. And it was really weird to see that day by day, just hard science done for somebody who just wanted to work on treating the virus as best she could up against a political whirlwind of everybody speculating, you know, people with no training at all, just kind of with very, very firm opinions, which she did not have because she didn't think the evidence supported it, you know. So I, I've seen honest science and an inability to get it across. And I, of course, I've seen motivated reasoning in, in the academy, too. There's, there's plenty of both. Plenty of both, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very long answer to saying, basically, it's sometimes one, sometimes the other. I guess a question for you, at least as sort of like someone outside the academy, is, well, then how do you determine what's one and what's the other? I think you pretty much said that, you know, part of it is motivated reasoning and part of it is, you know, just bad communication skills. 
you know, how is a layman supposed to tell the difference? Because, you know, I mean, uh, at least in the field that I'm most familiar with, which is economics, it all looks like motivated reasoning to me. Like the entire department of economics at every university seemed to be, you know, justifying whatever government policies that happen to be, you know, and, you know, you hear about stuff like reproducibility crisis and with scientific papers, like, oh yeah, you know, it just seems like, okay, well, how true was this originally if you can't reproduce it? And, you know, like if you have stuff like that, then you know, how are we that are outside the academy that don't know these people that don't have this technical language, how are we supposed to understand this stuff? I mean, this is essentially very much in your wheelhouse since yep. you're, you're talking about epistemology of, you know, what, how are we supposed to know things if there's this, you know, maybe there are people like your wife that are very much, you know, motivated by seeking the truth. But how do we, like, it's all sort of lumped together, you know, in the quote-unquote academy along, you know, her and Paul Krugman, you know, essentially are in the academy. How are we supposed to figure it out? I I mean, I really wish I had an answer. (laughs) Bitcoin is awesome because you can check everything yourself. You know, we have this saying, Mm. you know, don't trust, verify. And Mm. in Bitcoin, that actually works. You know it. You can inspect every line of code. It's open source. You can run it yourself. You could basically check. It's not easy, but you could check everything yourself. Some of what's kind of amazing about Bitcoin is that you can take apart FUD that has actually been published in peer-reviewed journals just by knowing the protocol. You know, you can take apart mm. Alex DeVries and uh, Camille Mora, and you can take apart a lot of the sides of the FUD dice just by actually knowing how Bitcoin works and what it is. And that is awesome. There are sections of the world where you can verify. And obviously, that's the gold standard, not to trust anyone, but to verify. But trust is unavoidable. Uh, You do have to trust people because human knowledge is too broad to verify everything yourself. I guess that's the news that I bear (laughs) from the technology (laughs) front. And I don't... If I had a solution which would allow you to avoid trust, you know, that would be great. But the best thing we have, honestly, is the institution of science itself. Science is the means by which we minimize trust in others while maximizing the use of their discoveries. You know, the replicability crisis, it's great that you brought that up. I mean, what that shows is not a failure of science, but that science, it does show that, but it shows that we need to do is replicate more studies. When you look, when you push into why that crisis happened, you know, there's a bunch of different causes. One of them was flat out fraud, certainly. One of them, that happens a lot in science. There's a lot of fraud in science. One of them was that more extreme results tend to get published because they're clickbaity. Only surprising things get published, not boring things. And if you just publish a bunch of surprising things, then statistically, you're going to publish outlying experiments that aren't reproduced. One of them was the reliance on a certain kind of probability theory, uh, frequentism, rather than Bayesianism. And one of them was having insufficiently high standards for statistical significance. So there are a number of different causes that we've identified. And another one is just like not funding studies that simply replicate other funding studies, like those being boring again. And 
So we kind of learning on a meta level, actually, I have a colleague here at Reed who's in the psychology department who's done a lot of his work on this replication crisis. And basically, the discipline has to learn from it. And I hope that actually Bitcoin is a lesson for economics. And I hope there will be a retrospective, like how did we miss the rise of this multi-trillion dollar space? What was it about our discipline that blinded us to it? I hope they'll be asking those questions. Just as uh, following the 2008 crisis, we saw the emergence of behavioral economics in part in response to like, how did we miss how do we miss this? And it was like, we're too wedded to uh, efficient markets hypothesis. And we were missing this irrational element of human behavior. So let's incorporate it into our discipline, right? So so just sorry, to, I'm giving you another long answer to your question. But no, no, I love know, long answers. So keep I mean, going. Yeah. You know, sh- sh- short, the short version is, I wish I had a way to sort through all of human knowledge and not trust the system we have. But the best system we have is science. And that's the system that's kind of breaking down because it, you know that's the system that is proven to be untrustworthy in a way. And uh, so all we can do is on the inside in the academy is work as hard as possible to reestablish that trust, do better, you know, learn from our mistakes, be better at listening, be better at communicating, and more honest when we get things wrong. All we can do is do better from the layperson side. I mean, you just can't have a really high credence value about a lot of things that you maybe thought you could if you're just trusting everyone. If you can verify, that's great. Definitely skepticism is warranted. If it's something that could be politically motivated, skepticism is warranted. For me, I still think science is the best thing I have to go on for for the vast majority of of issues. And I do defer to my colleagues. And despite the fact that it is politicized and I may be getting it wrong some of the time, because I I don't think the better option is like checking with your local in-group leader and asking them what they think. <laughs> because I don't mm. I don't think that's a better system than science. You know, there's a huge replication problem within cults and identity groups. They don't experiment at all and so they don't have repeated experiments at all. So, you know what I mean? There still isn't a better alternative. I wish there were. I wish there were. Hmm. And I, and I, well, and I, and I make an exception, Jimmy, for you know the stuff where you can check for sure, mm-hmm. like Bitcoin and, and the stuff where it is clearly politically motivated, which you do see sometimes, right? And then you just kind of have to write it off. Well, so you know, being in the Bitcoin space and sort of knowing the value of being able to verify things yourself, like I think the part of your answer that bothers me a little bit is this idea that the academy or science is one monolithic entity. And in a sense, it is. And that's what's bothering me. It's this, you know, they seem to sort of claim a monopoly on that knowledge. And yes, there's, uh, you know, scientific protocol and the scientific method and all this other stuff and standards or whatever. But as you said, there's a lot that sort of gets lumped in together. You know, if you're measuring the speed of light, you know, that that's one thing, but that gets lumped in with, you know, you know, Paul Krugman or whatever. And they all somehow are all sort of speaking as if they had the same amount of authority. And, you know, I, I was a math major and everything else. So for me, it's, it's, a lot of the sort of purported things that 
they say, like, I don't know, maybe this is a bias, you know, that people like me have. It's like the the softer the science is, the less I trust it because it seems much more sort of motivated reasoning there rather than, you know, something that you can, at least in theory, go and verify like very easily. And there seems to be sort of like a purposeful obscuring in many ways, especially around something like economics, which is extremely political. But, you know, even stuff like sociology or, or psychology or something like that. I don't oh, know. Yeah. What, what do you I, think of this idea that it's the edifice of academia is too big and that maybe that there's, you know, there needs to be more competition or more, less of a monopoly or thinking that it's one giant monolithic entity or something like that? I agree on everything you just said. Mm. I don't think there's a bright line between the hard and soft sciences, but I agree mm -hmm. there's a spectrum and it gets easier and easier to let social factors influence your beliefs the farther you go on that spectrum away from mathematics which is like the gold standard and the funny enough the, the discipline that would study that is sociology <laughs> you know what I mean? that's the discipline of like how much infection of your beliefs and, and results come from we need those disciplines because we are all human and what we are seeing essentially is this big breakdown in social epistemology it's a sociological problem that we're encountering. And to some extent, it's always been there. It's been obscured. You know, it's like with the decentralization of opinion and belief through social media, we've kind of exposed a lot of heterodox opinions and given them more airtime. It's not like there weren't all these heterodox take. They just didn't make it on the evening news. And there were only three channels blaring the evening <laughs> news, right? So mm. I, I, I agree. There's a spectrum. Number one. Number two, another point you made I completely agree with is that the academy is not a monolith. Even within disciplines, there are heterodox wings. I have to say my, my uh, colleagues here at Reed in the economics department have been very supportive and helpful in for my own thinking through what Bitcoin is and whether it's valuable. I mean, I think they have generally Keynesian leanings, like all, mm. you know, like from our perspective, like the whole discipline does. But they have a set of tools that are valuable for thinking. And those have been valuable for me as a Bitcoiner too, even though I disagree with them about monetary policy. I think the discipline has made a lot of you know discoveries and there's a lot to be learned from it, even if one disagrees about the... And, that, and so you go inside econ and you have you know different schools of thought, as you know. Some of the people I work with at the Bitcoin Policy Institute are economists. Will Luther is there, Josh uh, Hendrickson. So... We have our economists that uh, use the same set of tools. Uh, there's variation within there, but even within the branch of econ that I'm not into, I see a lot of value there in addition to the ideology. And yeah, I think the academy needs competition always. That's kind of the underlying principle of science, right? It's the opposite of a monolith. It's actually mm -hmm. constantly critiquing and retesting and advancing. And that's the history of science. It's conflict of ideas. It's really a Darwinian struggle in the search for truth that we kind of make into a social institution where we have these contests, right? That is the, the institution of science. But in periods of revolution, scientific revolution, 
means that whole institution has kind of got it wrong and is defending a wrong paradigm. And then we upend it and get another one. We call the result science, but the people who are heterodox during that revolution might not be called scientists during the revolution. They might be called anti-scientists right? while it's mm. happening. And I kind of think Bitcoiners are right there. They're actually like mm. scientists, like kind of on the cutting edge, monetary theory especially. They're being called anti-scientific. But in the future, we'll just look back on them as like leading scientists of that period <laughs> because we're going to, science will eventually follow the truth. So yeah, I agree with all of that stuff. And I just, I just think as an insider in the academy, like my big lesson is that we've got to do better. We've got to bring that contest inside. We have to learn from it. Like I'm amazed that the way that economists treat this phenomenon, which is now 13 years old and booming and upending conventional wisdom. I would treat this, if I were a scientist, as an anomaly. This is, again, in Kuhn's language. It's an anomaly, something that lies outside of their paradigm, where they're like, well, it's not a stable unit of account. It's not a means of exchange. It's just, it's not a good short-term store of value. So it can't be money, but its only value is if it is money, therefore it's worthless. Like That's the conclusion. And I've heard that from a number of economists. And then they watch this thing just violate that reasoning in real time, empirically. And I think that's like a, a great moment in the history of science. That's like finding a that's like finding astronomical phenomena that you didn't think could happen. Or you mix some things together in a test tube and you find some new reaction that you had never seen before. And it's like, okay, time to revisit the theory, retool it, and figure out what this phenomenon is. Because ultimately, economics is an empirical science. It's supposed to, even though a lot of it happens within theoretical assumptions, ultimately it's supposed to be useful in explaining economic phenomenon. And here's an economic phenomenon explain it. Right now, the discipline has no explanation for it. So I think it's a great moment for economists to you know, seize on the puzzle and try to solve it. Oh, so I'm a little bit skeptical of this ability for it to sort of revolutionize the academy, I guess, even on a longer term timescale. Because of, you know, like the way you presented it, it made it seem like, okay, well, there's, you know, differing opinions all the time. And, you know, there, you know, whatever is true actually wins, especially in something like economics, that doesn't seem to be the case. And we get stuff like the science says, and that sentence shouldn't make sense given how you describe science, which is a competition where, you know, this thing that describes, you know, reality better should win, but instead this other thing wins. Yeah. And that, that phenomenon shouldn't be possible. And, you know, especially with uh, respect to Keynesian economics, you had something like stagflation in the 70s, which yep. if it were true that they were actually self-reflective and trying to learn the truth, then they would have abandoned some of the, you know, ideologic or whatever their science says about this being kind of impossible, you know, they would have come around and come up with, you know, a different theory or a different paradigm that would explain that phenomenon. But instead, it's more or less been going further in the other direction, which is we need to defend whatever the economists at the Fed are 
doing and say that it's good or you're not going far enough. In the case of Paul Krugman, it's almost always no. you need to inject more money into the economy and you need like it, it seems extremely motivated reasoning yep. and, and not at all, you know, based on truth. So, you know, as somebody sitting on the outside, I, I totally get why people don't trust the yeah. monolithic thing because it, it's presented a certain way and it's like, okay, you either accept the whole thing or you don't. And there are clearly things that are wrong. So, you know, do yeah. you blame people for rejecting it? <laughs> no, I don't. And what you said about the way that the discipline is reacted to being wrong is exactly right. They're kind of doubling down, not seeing their errors. And, and that's also common in the history of science. So, mm. you know, econ is different from physics, but, you know, Galileo was put under house arrest. And, and basically, the, the church then was the academy now. Mm. Maybe, maybe people in churches and the academy will reject that comparison, but mm. the church mm. is where knowledge was seated. And at that time, there was no conflict between faith and reason because they were basically, because Thomas Aquinas was the philosopher of the Catholic Church. And he saw one branch science as natural theology and, and the Bible as revealed theology. And so he didn't see any conflict there. So they were the academy. When someone violated their beliefs, they put them under house arrest and tried to silence their books. And I think science is doing something very human and similar now in trying to squelch out heterodox opinions. But it takes some time to come around. And the difference is that in, in econ, you can kind of by shaping the narrative, you can make it come true. Like I feel like mm -hmm. part of the goal of the elite Bitcoin haters in econ, and I have a, somewhere a list of all of them. I've combined like a list of all of the econ sourced Bitcoin hate, and and a lot of these are economists who I've read and I I like them. In one case, I know per, a couple of cases I know personally. I feel like what's going on is really weird here and different from the physics thing. Because, you know, the church couldn't make the sun go around the earth, <laughs> but the economists actually kind of can make their prediction coming true, come true in some ways because they control the instruments of money itself and they shape the human behavior, both through instance of institutions of authority and also through their voices. So it's really weird. Instead of science just reporting on and recording reality, you have science as an input to reality. And that's what's different, right? Like I see Krugman doing his best to make his earlier prediction true. And, you know, if these institutions are successful, they will, as one uh, person put it recently on Twitter, burn Bitcoin to the ground and send its ashes into the sun. <laughs> you know, that's their goal. Mm. And I don't think they're going to succeed in doing that because, you know, honey badger don't care and et, et cetera. But that's kind of the goal. They have an action-oriented goal rather than a knowledge-oriented goal. Like basic epistemology is matching your mind to the world by conforming the mind to the world. The direction of fit is world to mind. Fit the world, or sorry, mind to world. You fit the mind to the world. But in action, it's the opposite. You also want a mind-world fit, but you fit the world to your mind. And I think, you know, the history of science, <laughs> the goal of science is to fit your mind to the world. 
But what we see with this kind of motivated reasoning in certain subsections of science is actually change reality so that it fits what you already believe about it. That's weird. And I don't really consider that to be part of science. That's part of politics or something. You know what I mean? Like make the mm -hmm. world how we want it to be. And I see economists like Krugman stepping between these two roles. One, on the one hand, he's just analyzing reality. On the other hand, he's trying to shape it. And what sucks is where you can't tell what he's doing. Like if I always knew which one he was doing, I would be like, okay, totally dismiss the Krugman who's just trying to shape the world, the salty no-coiner Krugman. But listen to what he has to say when he is trying to describe the world. But in truth, they're not distinct. His descriptions of the world are shaped by the way he wants the world to be. And I guess, you know, I agree with everything you said, except that in the long run, I do think that the truth wins out and these lame attempts to control it will ultimately fail, although they might succeed in the short term. And I mean, I think at some point it just starts looking really foolish. And I, I feel like the stagflation is a great example, but we haven't yet reached sort of the pinnacle of the failure of this way of thinking. And maybe it comes with uh, something that many economists, most economists probably reject, but maybe it comes with MMT. And once we get like full MMT with, you know, with a, a CBDC, with regular payments to all citizens, then a complete collapse, then, then you get people rethinking the whole paradigm. Wait, where do we go wrong? But it has to get pretty extreme. Yeah, it, it does have to get kind of extreme, doesn't it? And that's the part where where I'm pretty pessimistic in the academy's ability to correct itself. Because as long as it's within certain bounds and it's plausible, there is no paradigm shift coming. And, and as you mentioned with respect to the history of science, you know, it has to get pretty bad before, yeah. before people will give up a certain thing. And it's only at that point that uh, something changes. With something like economics, it, it feels like it's never going to really come to that. I really hope, I, I, I hope you're wrong, but I won't say you're wrong. <laughs> but I hope, I desperately hope you're wrong and we can react to things. And one of the sayings also is that these things don't happen until a generation of scientists dies off. That's mm -hmm. another saying, right? And we might, there's always this urge right, among young people coming up in the field, like they learn from their elders, but then they're always going to attack their paradigms. So it's probably, if I had to guess, I would say there are some people who are in graduate school right now at the best institutions who are paying homage, they're paying their dues, but in their head, they're starting to question these orthodoxies and they are going to overthrow them in brilliant ways that we can't even anticipate because they're going to be fully versed in, you know, they're going to be fully versed in economics at MIT, at Stanford, at Princeton. And then, and then it's going to be like, they're going to like want all the, cause there's a lot of glory for whoever does it. There's a lot of glory for whoever makes that, that transformative move. I wouldn't doubt if they're a student at one of those institutions right now. Pure so speculation. I, I I'm skeptical of that particular line of reasoning for this reason, especially in something like economics. You don't advance unless you like essentially conform to that particular thing, a uh, particular paradigm. And if you do sort of like flip that paradigm, then you've essentially like argued yourself out of a job. And this is the thing that we've seen in the academy over 
the past 50 years, especially in the social sciences, is that they get way more conforming to the like political ideology. I think something like, you know, 0.1% of, you know, social science professors are like Republican, something like that. It's, it's, they're all very much on one side of the spectrum. And it's an ideological sort of like litmus test that I don't see a way out of that coming out, uh, out of that because there isn't something like, you know, like you the know, telescope, astronomical observations or something in, in a lot of this stuff that you can point to and say, see, you're clearly wrong. Uh, I mean, like you pointed out, Bitcoin, I think, shows that a lot of these economists are wrong, but I don't see them really going and changing their or even the newer people coming up changing their stance because they get paid by the very same people that perpetuate it. I mean, it's definitely true. And I'll, I'll just add a little more color to it. Uh-huh. Uh, when you're coming up, you know, you have to get a job and jobs are very, very competitive in the mm-hmm. academy. Less so in economics because e- economists have other options, <laughs> but definitely in like sociology and anthropology, it's hard to get a job. And so you you really don't want to take the risk of having an unorthodox opinion that will put some people off. If you've put off one or two people on the hiring committee, that's all it takes. And then the next hurdle is tenure. You have to publish a bunch of pieces to get tenure. And again, you don't want to undermine the goodwill towards you with others on the committee that tenures you or the people who write letters to you. So you basically have to get to the tenure point before you're free. Once you get tenure, then you could truly speak your mind. But to get <laughs> tenure, you have to go through, you know, what it may be eight years of graduate school and then another six, seven years of pre-tenure work. So you're you're at this point, you're 15 years into faking someone you're not in order to and, speak your and mind. And that's only getting longer, right? Because it used to be that that's you could right. get an academic job right out of right after now. a PhD. Now you have this like eight-year postdoc wilderness that you have to go that's through. Right. So. That's right. There's, there's postdoc wilderness. So it's like by the time you get tenure, at that point, you are. it's this kind of an Orwellian or Solzhenitsynist point. But by the point you get tenure, you've already been socialized into conformity over decades. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? So you can't expect <laughs> tenured people to be revolutionaries because they... They're the most conforming people you can imagine. Exactly, because that's the only way you can get there, really. That's the only way you can get there. So you're right. And and the other thing you mentioned about the kind of political monopoly, I mean, that is tragic to me. And I didn't mention this before, but that's been kind of behind a lot of my remarks throughout about us in the academy letting, letting people down because we don't reflect that viewpoint within the academy, viewpoint from the right. And it's obvious when we speak and write, it is obvious that for the most part, we are not on the right side of the political spectrum. That's betrayed in everything, every word choice we make, the things that we notice and don't notice. And weirdly enough, like this point is, a, is an epistemology point called, I mean, it's called standpoint theory, that basically your situation socially, your identity, whether you're, it's your race or religion or socioeconomic class, or your political affiliations, or your nationality, these things affect what you see and what you miss in life. 
and it can't easily be simulated by people who don't share those identities. That's a standard talking point within epistemology, within sociology, and on the left as an underlying rationale for diversity. But it's weird that we have not, I think, fully learned that lesson and seen the effects of what happens. So if you have a bunch of entirely white academics, let's say, talking to a group of possible test subjects, all of whom are black, and asking them to participate in an experiment, you shouldn't be surprised if maybe there's a lack of trust there. You know, we had Tuskegee, and there's a memory of that. It's like, okay, but you expect an entire population, half of whom has an ideology that you consider to be wildly immoral, to trust what you say when that rep- that ideology is completely unrepresented in your ranks like anyway it's a it's a it's a lesson that has been learned in the academy and applied elsewhere but not really and truly to itself and we're now paying the price for it in the breakdown of trust in these institutions and i agree the breakdown in trust it's not entirely due to you know it's it's not entirely misplaced some of it is legitimate because parts of the academy are politicized and it's impossible to kind of for a layperson to go in and separate out the difference. Instead, we've just harmed the whole institution, which is why we have to heal it and fix it, as I see it. Well, is it healable? Is it fixable? Because at least from my perspective, what I think would actually change things and make it better is real competition. And I mean that's that's compatible, right? I agree with you. Yeah. And I'd love to see that too. But I, I'm, I'm in it, so I kind of want to. Not only am I in it, but like you know, I, I've got a foot in these two worlds. I teach at Reed mm-hmm. College. It's, it's called by some the most progressive college in America, and I'm in Bitcoin. Many of whom are at the right end of the political spectrum and zealous about it. And it, you know, what's weird is you you talk to people in these two communities, and they're all the same. They're all people. They're good well-intentioned, sincere people who are also flawed, right? who also have beliefs that you think are wrong. But it's like, yeah, my, I, I want to reiterate, my colleagues are, I think of them as truth-seeking people with integrity who are trying to do the best they can. And that, that goes for almost all of my colleagues doing almost all of what they do. Even the economists, they've, they've been wonderful to me. And so I'm, I'm not ready to give up in the sense that I feel like there's some kind of tragedy of communication here, because I feel like if people could walk the halls that I walk and talk to the very same people I talk to every day and work with, you know, you'd see they're not monsters bent on disinforming the public. And, and it feels the same way when I'm in Bitcoin. Like what, what I hear, the stereotypes I hear about Bitcoiners, it's like, come on, have you met any of these people? They're awesome. That's why I don't want to give up. Although competition, mm. of course, is welcome. It's like, I'm I'm inside the belly of the beast and people are really great here. You know, <laughs> these are my friends. They're really decent people. Yeah, I mean, I get that. There, Most people that you meet, I think, are going to be nice. But there's something that's like characteristic of the entire system that maybe is different than any individual within it. And I, I don't know if it's, it, this is uh, necessarily something that I can articulate very well, but you know, there's sort of like a group attitude that may be worse than any single person's attitude. Oh, you know what I mean? So so true. It's 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 definitely true. Yep. That I mean, <laughs> absolutely. Not just within the academy, but elsewhere. I see exactly that dynamic. 
I agree. And in that case, you know, like it, the academy is very hostile to people that disagree with it, and especially its political points. Um, and that that seems to me the thing that sort of harms it in many ways. And why, you know, I don't know. I think there's like sort of like a nascent, you know, competitive sort of alternative that's starting to come up uh, because the academy has had a monopoly for so long that that's starting to compete with it. You know, and I think about like the people that go on Joe Rogan, for example, right? Um, A lot of them are from the academy, but some of the, you know, they, there are very, you know, different points of view and can sort of hear the reasoning, right? They sort of show you, at least through those like four hour conversations or whatever, they they show the work a lot of times. And whereas with, you know, a press release from the IPCC or something like that, it's just sort of like, okay, we have no idea of how you did the work or anything like that. It, it looks like and feels like a political document. What do you I, think? I think it's, <laughs> first of all, the competition is extremely welcome. And I'm really mm. glad that there are outlets for academics to speak to the general public and share their work that run around a kind of censorship system. Mm. I mean, I'm anti-censorship. And that includes anti-censorship within the academy. I don't think that, you know, minority views in, in science should be squelched. And I'm glad they get an audience. I think it is difficult for lay people to evaluate some of these arguments uh, because they do take a lot of training and that's not something I like. It just f- feels like, well, man, you know, some of this stuff is really hard. And as far as the IPCC, I agree completely about like a press release, but they also do show their work in these thousand multi-thousand page reports. <laughs> that is definitely proof of work. They have it's not just I mean, I hate these like letters. I hate group letters in general. You know, I've made mm. it a policy not to sign any group letter of any kind. <laughs> mm. Hate group letters because they're basically appeals to authority. And uh, I don't like that. But uh, I do feel like these these groups do actually, you know, when they do issue a report, like there it is, every single footnote, every single source, all of the data. And that doesn't mean it's unproblematic, but... And if you read the reports, actually, they're much better as science than the releases and then the letters that people sign and then the journalism that's written about them. Right? Generally, when scientists are speaking in their, not just only in their own voice, but in the context of a scientific article, they're showing their findings. And part of that is also owning up to what their findings don't show. And some of that is like a confidence interval on what they've found, you know, <laughs> where how certain are we of this? Where could we be wrong? I mean, that's the stuff I like actually in science, but I agree with you. Basically, if there is censorship uh, within the academy and there are bright people who have different ideas and there always have been in the history of science and there always will be, whether that's like washing hands between babies that you deliver or whether it's ideas about electricity or or whether it's uh, you know somebody in a in a you know working in a patent office who has an idea about space and time themselves. And the history of science is full of outsiders with new ideas that challenge orthodoxy. And they either find their way through the institution of science or independent of it and are eventually vindicated 
and I'm glad those outlets exist and they must exist. And, and, and if we become more and more like uniform politically and within the academy, we are only enhancing uh, the build out of those other institutions. I mean, the same goes for education as a whole. And I have to say, even though I'm in this business, right, I'm, I think our college charges something like 75 grand a year for tuition. I mean, this whole kind of industry, it's been propped up by funny money. It's created a massive student debt crisis. And it has veered very far from the way of thinking of most people in the country or a lot, a good number of people in the country. And in some ways, it's very vulnerable. It's very expensive. It is laden with layers of administration. And it can be disrupted. It could be disrupted on, you know, on this kind of Sailor Academy front of kind of scaling up education with technology, much of which is free. And it could be disrupted on the research side by an alternative institution. And so, I mean, that's great. That's just competition. And I think that will, yeah, the, the academy will either adjust, it will do a better job of communicating itself and providing value, do a better job of incorporating heterodox views, minority views, giving voice to them, giving critique to them and communicating about them, or it will lose in this competition. It's just, I mean, it's just like competition on the monetary front, right? We will see if education is a shit coin. It will, the market will decide ultimately. Well, that's a really interesting thing to think about because it is sort of like based on education, right? Like with the academy, but obviously $70,000 a year, uh, people are starting to opt out. You know, all this funny money that's, uh, that's funding it, it does, you know, it is being questioned. And it seems like, I don't know, like the beginning of the end maybe of the academy. And I think Certainly for a lot of people, they welcome that. What do you wish we could keep if it were to sort of collapse? Yeah, it's it's kind of collapsing in the middle of the mm. in the middle of the kind of spectrum of price. You know, Harvard's not gonna collapse. <laughs> mm. Princeton's not gonna collapse, Swarthmore's not gonna collapse. And also your kind of local community college and state school won't collapse because they're serving economic needs locally in the community and they're run on a shoestring. What's going to collapse is kind of stuff in the middle. It's not going to serve the 1% in the society. And it's also not serving people who are strapped and local businesses. Those will collapse. And I think that's sad from the perspective of, I know people, a lot of people at those institutions, but economically it's kind of okay, that's just going to happen. In terms of what can survive, I don't know. I think about my uh, my father's uh, old institution, which was University of Wisconsin. Actually, when that university was set up, its mandate was to help the legislature um, settle questions of fact, which would enable them to make wiser policy. The, the institution was supposed to be like a truth machine. It would produce truths that you could then make good law on the basis of. And I think uh, the history of our society in the U.S. bears witness to the, the success of that mission. State universities in particular funded a lot of basic research. Some of it was funded through the government, through DOD. But that basic research set up the United States to be a powerhouse economically world, worldwide. And we had a more informed citizenry as well. And I think that's been a positive for our country. On the whole, you know, I look, I'm an educator. I believe in education. 
I think it's great to spend some time in your youth, especially exploring life's great questions, like tapping into the best of human knowledge from the past and uh, creating things yourself, whether that's art, music, or intellectual product, doing science yourself. Like, I believe in this. I think this makes us a better citizenry and a better country and wealthier. I hope that that core value is not lost, even as the economic institution of which is, you know, I think bloated and somewhat the result of misallocation of resources. Even as that shrinks, I hope we hold on to the core values of an educated citizenry and informed uh, public policy and cutting edge scientific research that undergirds a an industrial leadership in the world. You know, I mean, ultimately, I believe in science. I believe in the power of knowledge. And I think we've benefited from it. And I hope we don't give that up just because the thing has become politically captured and economically bloated. I don't know. From my perspective, I'd <laughs> like to see a lot of, especially the social science stuff, which I don't think adds any value whatsoever, go away. And maybe put into different institutions, because to me, that's not really learning. It's indoctrination. A lot of the... I mean, I I hope you're wrong and it can be done better. I think this conversation (laughs) exactly, you know, is already sociology. And it could be... No doubt that there exists such a discipline and that it could be done better. I just don't think it can be done in that context without it becoming super political, which, Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't... It becomes way more about motivated reasoning and the truth gets sacrificed in that case. I would like to see a lot more engineering, but even even in like, so I'm a math guy, right? So yep. even in something like physics, I see so many people spending time on stuff like string theory, which cannot be proven, like literally cannot be proven. And there are no experiments that anyone's thought of that can figure out whether or not it's true, but there are hundreds, if not thousands of PhD dissertations, you know, entire departments full of people that are thinking about that stuff rather than actually trying to figure out what reality is. That to me is just sort of like mental masturbation. Um, And that's, that's what a, a lot of this stuff tends to go towards in large part because of this sort of rent seekiness of uh, a lot of these positions where, you know, if you can't be proven wrong, then you don't have anything to worry about. And if you can just like FUD people that disagree with you uh, to the end and never really be proven wrong, great, your your position's secure forever. That seems to be how the academy has progressed. And I, I don't, I don't see how it can really reverse that because of all of the funny money, as you say, that sort of props all of that up. They want those positions, not so that they can uh, seek truth, but because it's a good rent-seeking position. Well, I mean, as a metaphysician, I'm in no position to throw stones here. <laughs> I mean, but um, but I mean, I did, I do remember picking up a book in a bookstore in New York once by a Columbia professor called "Not Even Wrong," and it was about yeah. string theory and its inability to be falsified. I mean, I think there's something. So I've, I will say this. I mean, my thinking is rooted in 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 the history of of thinking. It's rooted in the history of philosophy. And it's very hard to kind of impose a test of testability or meaningfulness or 
like that this is what I was saying before about that bright line between the hard sciences and the soft sciences. It's very hard to impose that. And we've kind of learned that historically because we've had movements in philosophy that tried to do it, namely the logical positivists. Mm. And a lot of what I hear within physics, especially physics that rejects string theory, reminds me of logical positivism. So for instance, somebody told me, somebody in the physics department, who used to be in the physics department here, told me, you know, well, if something isn't falsifiable, then I'm not interested in it because it can't be false and it can't be true and it's not meaningful. And I just said to them the thing that I learned from the history of logical positivism, which is like, what about that thing you just said? What you just said is that if something can't be tested, mm -hmm. then it's not true or meaningful. Well, then what did you just say? Was that true? Was it meaningful? By your own lights, it's neither. So why the hell did you say it? Like, what were you saying? <laughs> Mm. We can't avoid, in a way, even the, the dismissal of everything that's not testable is not testable. Life is bigger and thought is bigger than just the realm of the testable. And I would like to leave a little bit of space for it. And I think we see that in Plato and Aristotle and Jesus and, you know, like in the entire history of, of thinkers. But I agree that it is uniquely, when something's not testable, it is uniquely uh, vulnerable to motivated reasoning, political influence, and rent-seeking. I like that you use that term because totally right in the sense that you can kind of build a fiefdom that is untethered from reality in a way. That's a, a kind of vulnerability and a possibility that's left open by something being untestable. And I mean, the person I like on this is uh, another econ hater of Bitcoin, and that's Nassim Taleb. I mean, he's mm -hmm. great on this. He's great on this. The, this is the IYI category, and this is people who don't have skin in the game. And, mm -hmm. you know, I see that everywhere. I mean, I am an intellectual yet idiot, and I am somebody who doesn't have skin in a lot of the games that I write and think about. But I, I found Taleb just absolutely hilarious on this stuff. I mean, he's well, dead I mean, on. He's, he's, he might be wrong about Bitcoin, but I think on IYI, I think he's very accurate in that... You know, they like, what are these people doing? And are, are they really doing anything? I don't think he's, as far as I know from his books, he's ever really said that the cause of this is really sort of like this weird monetary rent-seeking phenomenon, which happens almost everywhere from what I can see. And it, it does sort of like add a lot more motivated reasoning to which which results in this behavior. But that I, I mean, I think I, about it a lot as a as a philosopher. I mm -hmm. I feel like I'm entrusted with mm -hmm. not wasting people's money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whether that's my students' money and its tuition, or whether it's state money if I'm working for a state institution. You know, there's a great great deal of trust because I could just engage in what you call mental masturbation. I could take up problems that don't matter and just crank out papers on them and possibly get them published and, you know, make a life out of what isn't actually valuable. And so it, it's a structural vulnerability, but I take it as a matter of personal responsibility that I should not do that and that I should only take up questions that actually do matter to human beings and to human discourse. And of course, there's never going to be uniformity about that. And of course, a lot of things that seem to be wasteful turn out not to be, and you must know this as a mathematician. Right? A lot of mathematical discoveries are made purely for the enjoyment and beauty of their discovery, and yet they eventually prove to be useful. And 
you know, human well, beings. All right, the word "useful" is uh, doing a lot of work in that sentence. Well, that's right. I mean, that's right. I mean, who gets to even say what useful is? Like, I, I think to some extent, mathematics is its own end. And mm. discovering new mathematical truths is like discovering more of space. You know, that is useful. Just like that, mm -hmm. that's part of what it is to live a full and rich human life. And I feel the same way about poetry. Uh, I feel the same way about philosophy and music. You know, they're like studying these things is in and of itself valuable, not only for what comes out of it. Right. So mm. I feel like if we abandon that entirely in the free market, another institution will arise that fulfills the human need to study and produce in depth these quote unquote useless things that are nevertheless part of a of a fulfilling existence. Does string theory really do that <laughs> or quantum computing or, you know, cold fusion or all of the all of this stuff that. Honestly, we've wasted way too much money on, way too many resources on that really haven't produced anything for many decades and uh, for for some of this stuff and seem to be sort of you know very ripe for rent seeking. Well, it's kind of like, like it's kind of like startups and you know VC. It's like you're going to have a lot of excess and you're going to have that one winner that pays off huge. And, you know, cold fusion is not paid off. Uh, take just fusion generally. That hasn't paid off either. But if it does pay off, it's, it's energy on a vast scale that, you know, pumps us up the Kardashev measure. <laughs> you know, so it's like, mm -hmm. oh, man, you know, and everybody I've talked to about it says we're 10 years away from with enough investment. And, of course, they've been saying that for the last 40 years, but <laughs> it's like, it's hard to turn down an investment because the potential payoff is so big. And I don't know about string theory. Honestly, I, I can't. Well, I, but but this is sort of like the flaw of academia, which has essentially become financialized in my opinion, which is that, you know, money solves everything, right? You just pour more money into it and we'll have more knowledge in this area. I think string theory is proof that essentially what happens is you pour a lot of money into it and it goes to useless waste, right? Like, a, like this is true of education as well, where they're like, okay, if we just put more money per student, their thing will improve. It's this sort of like meta assumption about the role of money in everything, which is that if you just add more money, it'll improve X. And that... It's just not true. It's way more about the systems and the people involved and how they operate and the incentives that you give them. If you just pour money, it it almost never works, like from an economic perspective. Yeah. I mean, I certainly agree with you about a lot of those cases. I mean, some things, however, require a lot of funding. And we learned this in physics, basically following physics radically changed as a discipline because of World War II, you know, the search mm -hmm. for the bomb, we went from small physics to big physics. You know, in, in the 1930s, you could gather all the leading physicists at one conference in the world. Physicists didn't have a lot of money. They, they made incredible breakthroughs like relativity and quantum mechanics without any money to speak of. But the bomb changed everything. We created an institution that largely did become about applying for and managing grants like leading physicists like <laughs> manage a ton of money they're running like fiefdoms corporations really and and that did lead to 
various kinds of breakthroughs and now you have you know massive particle accelerators there's no way to do that from the armchair and cheaply so some of what big science does now does take a huge investment well well so the question then is how much of it is is the result of all of this funding and like at least for me looking at the history of physics like the stuff pre-World War II is way more significant and paradigm changing oh, than yeah. the stuff after World War II. So adding that money, actually, if you look at it from a purely correlational standpoint, doesn't seem to have actually made much. And like people are trying for new paradigms all the time, string theory being one of them. But it actually doesn't explain reality better. And it's almost always like sort of off on these weird tangents that, and, you know, particularly expensive stuff like particle accelerators instead of other things that might be way more useful. Like how much of that are we missing now because we went this route of, you know, big physics, as you say? Yeah, that's a great question. And I wish I knew more. I, I don't know any more than you do on that front. Like what is malinvestment in research? And how do we improve the, you know, return on investment in science generally? And I don't disagree that there's a tremendous amount of malinvestment, but it's also not clear how you do investment in a way that gives you a better return. It's just someone who is, you know, written grants and is on committees that award grants and works with colleagues who are writing grants all the time. Like the process of writing grants is exactly the process of trying to achieve a more efficient investment. And it just sucks for everybody. I mean, writing these grants <laughs> occupies uh, tremendous amounts of time and energy that actually keep you from your research. But we make the grant writing process more and more, like there are more and more hoops to jump through to get the money thrown at you. And that's precisely to avoid malinvestment. But what ends up happening is that your job then becomes about jumping through these hoops rather than learning stuff. So, so it's, it's, yes, it's malinvestment. I don't know exactly how it gets fixed, but I know that a lot of the attempts to fix it actually make it worse. Kind of like, you know, kind of like if you want to spend money for a government agency and you work for, let's say the department of defense or whatever, they, they've bought too many, whatever, $5,500 toilet seats. So now you have to jump through 12 hoops to buy a toilet seat. <laughs> the hoops that you jump through might might waste more money than actually just paying a lot for an occasional toilet seat when somebody finds a loophole, right? Anyway, it's kind of like that in the academy. It's really hard, generally, to see where science will grow and what counts as a promising investment. Kind of like regular VC decisions, but even harder because we're like in advance of knowing stuff. And I feel like, you know, I've I've actually talked to some people who head these organizations, the National Science Foundation, kind of about this problem. And uh, some amount of waste is inevitable for the return. Limiting the, the waste is in incredibly difficult. And yeah, maybe, maybe this is the Bitcoiner perspective. Maybe the problem gets a lot easier when you can't just print money. <laughs> and the money is scarcer to, be, to begin with. And I, I take your point about physics being in a way, not as groundbreaking post-World War II. But what we don't know is what physics would look like in the history of, you know, say, semiconductors, 
without pub- that massive public investment, without big physics, what would we know? And how would it have gone? How much more impoverished we would have been? We can't really see that counterfactual, right? So, yeah, a lot yeah, of we, a lot we really of... can't. But what we do have is pre World War II, like you said, <laughs> yeah, wasn't much money going in. We got relativity, we got quantum, we got lots of like groundbreaking things, like actual experimentation that that proved a lot of that stuff. Yep. All right. It, it's it seems to me like. The academy is like that giant government program, where uh, like post World War II, like how uh, science has been done. Whereas like pre World War II, maybe it was a lot more like you know individuals sort of doing it. And I'm sure you can tell me better, but it seems to me that the history of science, a lot of the people that make these breakthroughs are not even scientists or even engineers. They're just People that are really into the topic, they sort of fund their own stuff and, and you know, come up with an experiment and, you know, public, like sort of like let people know about it. And that that's how science used to progress. Seems like this government, pro, giant government program versus entrepreneurs. That seems to be the big model change that that's happened. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, going back in history that the institution of science didn't really exist. It hasn't mm. existed for, I mean, the, the word science didn't exist until whatever it was, 1850 or something. There was the church and there were people who were mm. working for the church. And that was the kind of the closest we had to the institution. Then we had universities, but nothing approaching the institution we have in science today. When I love reading about these old you know, parties in Victorian England where people did science experiments like for fun in their basements. Like they would, you know, have all their friends out to their mansion and put together a, an experiment to test like the nature of light or whatever. <laughs> you know, mm. So science, science used to be a, a leisure activity. Aristotle would call it leisure. Something you work in order to do that. Science was in that category. And I would say even more than entrepreneur, it was like a leisure activity. And then it got pushed over into the work category science it, it used to be a way of sort of the highest way of of exercising your human curiosity that is very difficult to do now given the scope of human knowledge i mean like why haven't we had breakthroughs like relativity and quantum theory post war it's it's because that was low hanging fruit man that was low hanging fruit like you you know what i mean there there aren't just like when you learn physics now you know, at Reed, for instance, I can speak to this. You have to start taking physics on day one uh, when you come here, and you have to take physics throughout your entire education. Your fourth year, you you get to relativity and quantum theory. In your senior year, that's where your now your experimentation like starts. <laughs> Whereas mm. pre-war, that wasn't in the curriculum because it hadn't been even discovered yet, right? So there's just like. Mm. We have less and less low-hanging fruit, and more and more what we learn requires the uptake of knowledge of everything humans have got to this point, and then a lot of that requires like fancy experimentation. Like even these pre-war experiments, like measuring the speed of light, is not trivial. Yeah, your setup has to be perfect to measure the speed of light. That's really tricky. And like we have a nuclear reactor here at Reed. We have the only student-run nuclear reactor in the country. Again, that's not really something you can have in your Victorian basement. <laughs> you know, maybe it will be with SMRs, but you know, getting a nuclear reactor set up is uh, very, very tricky. <laughs> you know, so 
science has advanced far enough that amateur discoveries are very difficult. Um, and it's one of the things that's so cool about Bitcoin. And one of the things that amazed me coming into it was it was a place where amateurs could just r- seriously roll out of bed and make contributions. <laughs> you could you could make a commit without having a PhD in computer science, right? You could make a contribution. And it was incredible or to the general discussion. And I believe that's true across, of course, a lot of areas, but in a lot of areas, it really is not. Like, well, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that one because okay. I, I, I think you underestimate the sort of, first of all, the desire of a lot of people to just learn for learning's sake. And second, be, uh, the sort of creativity of people to discover new things on the cheap. Maybe it's very expensive because that's the money's money was always sort of available. Whereas if you were forced to figure out some way to test some nuclear reaction, people would have come up with something more interesting and fast, uh, you know, through the work of genius instead of that same person, you know, doing a 20 year Mm -hmm. journey to get to tenure at a university. Maybe, maybe they, you know, figure something out in their basement. I don't know. I mean, I hope you're right. And I would love to, to see it. And I'm actually sure there is a lot of, you know, I mean, sure, there is a lot of low-hanging fruit around that we have missed. I do believe, as you say, in human curiosity and ingenuity. It's just, it's just that a lot of the you know grant proposals that I see, for instance, I don't see a cheaper way to study them <laughs> than mm-hmm. than act, doing what people are proposing. I, maybe that's my own lack of imagination, but I, I don't well, see. I it. Mean, uh, if you don't have a grant thing, then people just do it on their own, right? Like, and and do it smaller, or maybe there are. Rich people, you know, like the old Medici's or whatever. And yeah. Instead well, you do of see, uh, sponsoring you do see, art. <laughs> you see academics uh, around the world that are incredibly resourceful, which are, which are mm-hmm. at under-resourced institutions. You know, Sci-Hub means we can share scientific papers for free, basically mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah, you do see smart people around the world with institutions with fewer resources kind of doing the best they can with what they have. And it's pretty cool. You're right. That does exist already in a way, just from underfunded places. Well, this has been an interesting discussion about epistemology and science and all that stuff. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Yeah, this has been an interesting discussion. We haven't even really <laughs> talked about you know what I've done in Bitcoin and stuff. Just <laughs> fine. People can figure that out on by following me on Twitter. I'm at the Trocro T H E T R O C R O. I'm also a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, BPI, where I'm writing mostly about mining and energy. And uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I'm at Reed College. I'm in my office right now, but I'm actually on a leave right now, unpaid leave, just to work entirely on Bitcoin and explore this space. So I have a foot kind of thoroughly in the Bitcoin world. And if you want to contact me to talk to me about particularly issues on energy, but really anything in Bitcoin. You know, I'd love that. Uh, feel free to reach out through Twitter DMs. All right. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com. 
Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Troy Cross can be found at at the Trocro on Twitter. Until next time, fiat de est.